We hope you enjoy this podcast from Light Church Edithburg. To find out more about us, visit lightchurch.co. It's good to see you all this morning. It's a bit strange. We were, we were saying yesterday, after so many, so many hot days, it's a bit strange to, uh, to be cool in the evening. I hope you've been enjoying it. Over the past, uh, past few weeks, we've been doing a series called uh, The Small Things. So Ben introduced this idea of um, what, are the, what are some of the small practices that you could, you could do, you could maybe start doing that. If you did them monthly, weekly, daily, just little things, in 10 years' time you would look back and think, gee, that's really made a difference. That's really, really changed my life. And, and he began by talking about prayer, just small practices of prayer, even attitudes towards prayer, and that can, that can change, change our lives and change our relationship with God. And then Cody talked about generosity and um, the attitudes around generosity. And last week we had our guests, the Windsors, and although they didn't specifically talk about the small things, you know, they were sharing their lives of service and how, how that has impacted their relationship with God and, and the impact that God is having in the world. Today I'm going to talk about something that maybe doesn't seem like such a small thing, and that's celebration. So I'm going to talk about celebration, and yeah, maybe a, a title could be Celebration is a Table, Not a Tower. So I'm going to talk about the little attitudes that we can put into practice weekly, daily, that mean that when we come to a, to a time of big celebration, we can bring all of ourselves to God. I'm going to be um, reading from Matthew chapter 9. And uh, before I start, I want, I want you to think about some celebrations that you've been to. What are some of the best celebrations you've been at? What were the occasions? I reckon high on a lot of people's lists are weddings. They're often a lot of fun. Birthdays? Was it a particular Christmas when, when everyone could be there? I know something that stands out for me was, um, was the dedication service we had for our boys. We had it at our house and uh, many of you were there. But the amazing thing about that was the event was amazing, but it was also the week before all of the first COVID lockdowns and everything. So we had people who visited from the East Coast. We had people who visited for Ad- from Adelaide. Um, friends and family from all over the place who we didn't get to see for another year or so. And um, so that was a super special time. So we have some fantastic celebrations, but I also wonder if you can think about some celebrations that have felt kind of hollow, where um, people have not really brought all of themselves or they've just fallen a bit flat. We're going to think about why, what, what makes those celebrations really rich? What can we bring to those celebrations? Um, to make them rich. So in Matthew chapter 9, beginning at verse 9, we have the story of the call of Matthew. Now this is a pretty important story and we know it's important because it's in the gospel of Matthew, Mark and Luke. And I don't think this story is in there so many times just because Matthew was one of the disciples, but I think it, it tells us something about the way Jesus did ministry. And the kind of 
kind of celebrations he brought along with him. Because Jesus was known for his celebrations. So if you um, think about some of those stories in the gospel, the stories of Jesus' life, he's always eating, isn't he? He's always eating at people's places. He's always inviting people over or being invited over or inviting himself over and having a party. In fact, in, in Matthew chapter 11, Jesus says, John came neither eating or drinking, and they say, he has a demon. The son of man came eating and drinking, and they say, look, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Now, you don't get the reputation as a glutton and a drunkard unless you've been around some pretty big parties. It doesn't matter how Jesus has behaved at those parties. He's obviously been in some pretty exciting places. So we have the story of Matthew. And it begins, as Jesus was walking along, and in Mark we're reminded that he's walking along beside the sea, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And Matthew got up and followed him. Because there are so many tax collectors in the Gospels, I think sometimes we need to stop and remind ourselves exactly what a tax collector is. And it's not just um, like someone who works for the Australian government. It's not the same thing. There is a reason why the tax collectors were particularly repulsive in Jesus' time. And so if, if we can place ourselves beside the Sea of Galilee, in the, in the generation of Jesus, in Jesus' lifetime, the Sea of Galilee had gone from a place where the local fishermen fished for themselves to feed their family and have a little bit to sell at the market so that they could get their veggies and, and grain and all the other stuff and, um, and live a pretty comfortable but hand-to-mouth existence. That's what it used to be like. But in Jesus' lifetime, Herod had moved his palace from Sepphoris, which was just down the road from Nazareth, and had moved it to the lake, to Tiberias. And he'd, he'd named, renamed the lake, not the Sea of Galilee anymore, but Lake Tiberias, in honour of the Roman Empire, Emperor. And the lake had become uh, part of the, the global economy. And so the, the local fishermen, they weren't just fishing for themselves anymore, they were fishing for the Roman Empire. So they would um, harvest the fish, and they would be dried and salted and turned into fish sauce and exported across the known world, across the Roman Empire. And you would think that this kind of global economy would be a, a boon for, for the people living in Galilee. But people who've, who do research around these things say that after Rome took their taxes, Herod took his taxes, and the tax collectors skimmed their little bit off the top, that most of the, most of the Galilean fisher, fishermen would have got 30%, 30% left over. So the rest of it was taken in, in taxes and, uh, and other kind of things. So people barely had enough to live on. And um, more, more proof of this is this boat, I don't know if anyone's heard of the Jesus boat that they found in Galilee. 
Um, it's not Jesus's boat, by the way, but it's a boat that they dug up from the from the sea. They found it in the mud, and it was really well preserved. But it's from from this time. And one of the things they that was really remarkable about this, this fisherman's boat is that it had been repaired with 10 different types of timber. Like this boat was barely holding together. The people who owned this boat barely had enough money to keep the thing afloat. They were people who were under pressure. That's what life was like in Galilee. But the Romans were smart. They didn't bring in the legionaries and the centurions to, uh, to extract their taxes. They got the locals to do it. And that's what Matthew was doing. So he was one of the locals who was causing life in Galilee to be hard work. People were barely scraping by, and it was because of the work that Matthew was doing. So when Jesus comes along and says, follow me, He's saying, follow me, to a complete outsider, a complete outcast. He's a traitor to his nation. He's a traitor to his religion and his God. He's a traitor to his family and friends. He not only doesn't have anyone, but he's spurned by everyone because of the things that he's done. So Jesus says, follow me. He doesn't say, Matthew, you have to do these things in order to follow me. He just says, follow me. And Matthew, in Luke it tells us, he leaves everything and he follows Jesus. So I've got a picture um, of a table and I think celebration is our table. Do we have that, Julie? Um, Can we do the next one that has a close-up of the table? This is the table of celebration. And I think that... When we come to celebrate, whether it be celebrating the end of the week or, or a big celebration like, like Christmas or Easter or a birthday, what we bring to the table is our thanks or the, the fancy, fancy fashionable word is our gratitude. We bring gratitude. And I'm going to talk about this a little bit more later on. But Matthew brings his thanks. In what, in what continues of this story, Matthew is grateful. He shows his gratitude to Jesus because Jesus has called him to follow. No questions asked. That's just it. Just follow me. So if we continue with the story, as he sat at dinner, that's Jesus. Jesus sat at dinner in the house. There were many tax collectors and sinners who came and were sitting with him and his disciples. When the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? That's a good question. And I think that might be a question his disciples were asking too. Why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? So remember that these tax collectors are traitors. They set up their booths by the sea. If a tax collector has set up their booth by the sea, who are they taxing? Fishermen. Now we know that a lot of Jesus' disciples were fishermen. So what's going on here? These are 
sworn enemies. These, the stuff that Matthew has done has caused Jesus' disciples to be in the tough situation that they're in. What is happening here? Why is Jesus eating with tax collectors and sinners? Well, if we go to, um, to Luke at the start of Jesus' ministry, uh, Jesus proclaims uh, his, what he's doing, his purpose. So Jesus went into the synagogue. This is in Luke chapter 4 from verse 18. He unrolls the scroll and he reads from Isaiah. He quotes from Isaiah and, and he says this, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind and to let the oppressed go, go free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favour. Now that year of the Lord's favour, it was known by the people who were listening that Jesus is talking about the year of Jubilee. So I think what Jesus is doing here at Matthew's house, what's going on is a meal of Jubilee with the tax collectors, the sinners and the fishermen. It's, it's a meal of Jubilee. And in order to explain that, we need to digress a little bit. So I'm sure many of you have slaved away in the book of Leviticus. Leviticus chapter 25 is where it talks about the year of Jubilee and it, it warrants a bit of, bit of explaining. So there are four things that happen in the year of Jubilee. And this is what Jesus is saying he's proclaiming. Not just for a year, but like this is the kingdom of God. That's what's, that's what's happening now, now that Jesus is here. Not just for a little time, but this is what Jesus is bringing, bringing, in, bringing to life now. The year of Jubilee. And Matthew's dinner is an example of it what it might look like. So here's what happens in the year of Jubilee. The land has a Sabbath rest. No one plants anything. No one harvests anything. Uh, it doesn't specifically say anything about the animals, but I imagine you're not supposed to be um, working particularly hard, doing your shearing and all that kind of stuff. The land gets a rest. And now if you can imagine, that's rest for the land. And we know that that's a really important thing for the land to continue being productive, that it gets some rest. But if your job is a farmer, as many of you know, if you're not having to reap or sow or um, look after the land, that's also giving rest to the people, isn't it? So it's a year of rest. Year of rest. What could you possibly do with that year? A year of rest for the people and for the land. But not only that, you don't have to spend this year resting and thinking about your mortgage repayments because all the debts have been cancelled. That's it. Nothing. No debt at all. Can you put yourself in that position for a moment and just imagine the freedom? You don't have to work because you don't have to harvest and you don't have to sow you don't have to pay any debts and you won't next year either unless you get yourself into debt next year that's it it's like a clean slate 
Can you imagine what that is like? What an incredible start. So those who are um, in debt, they might be paying back or they might have sold themselves to someone else, to the person they're in debt to um, as a slave or indentured servant. And those people get to go free too. That's part of it. That's the third thing. And the last thing is that the land is returned to the original owners. So everything's levelled out again. The person who'd bought up all the land beforehand, it all goes back. That's what the year of Jubilee is. And can you imagine that, that feeling of, of peace when you didn't have to work? You didn't have to repay your debts because they're gone. Jesus says that this is what his ministry is all about. That is what he's pro- proclaiming. When Jesus talks about the kingdom of God, he's talking about that year of Jubilee. He's talking about the year where everything is made right. And it's not just a year anymore. It's here now. So the Pharisees have asked, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? It's because it's the year of Jubilee. Because everything has been set right again. Now the year of Jubilee, if we can um, have... my other picture of the table, Julie, with the legs. The year of Jubilee, as along with all the other Jewish celebrations, is about actually living out your trust in God. So you say you trust God, but when you do these things, when you have the year of Jubilee, you're actually putting it into practice because you're not harvesting, you're not sowing. You're just eating what the God's provided the year before, which it says that God will provide double or triple. So, when we celebrate, and all the Jewish festivals are like this, we've got the year of Jubilee, but also Passover every year, the Feast of Booths, all these new moon festivals. They're about giving your best and sharing it out, not keeping it for yourself, not grasping it, not hanging on to it, because that is the way that we can actually demonstrate that we trust God. We can say it lots, but celebration is asking us to put it into practice. Now, this is perhaps not a perfect example of it because we don't rely on the apples of our tree at home, our numerous apple trees at home, but we, we inherited these apple trees when we, when we bought our house and they are incredibly productive. And so every year, as a way of saying, you know, it's not a... You're not going to find Apple Fest in the, in the Bible anywhere. But um, as our way of saying thanks for the abundance that we get of apples, uh, we put on a bit of a party and we invite people over and people make loads of apple juice and, uh, and dry apples and preserve apples and take a bag home. And you know what? We always say to people, take as much as you want, take heaps of apples. And we always have buckets and buckets and buckets left over. We have so much. And... We can just um, be generous with what God has given us. And we still have heaps left over. I wonder if we can think about some of the things that we hold tightly to, some of the gifts that we hold tightly to. Can we be generous with them? Can we 
give them freely because they've been given freely to us and we'll realise that we've got heaps left over. We've got more than enough still. Because we have a generous God. We have a world that tells us that everything is scarce and you need to, you need to scrape and scrounge to, to get what you need. But we have a God who is generous and abundant. And that's what, um, that's what the Jews were practising. That's what these celebrations were all about. That's what Sabbath was all about. Every seventh day, you don't work. And the reason why you don't work isn't just because you need a rest. It's because you need to prove to yourself that God is the one who provides, not your hard work. So Matthew, his meal is a meal of jubilee. This is how Matthew is bringing his thanks. He's trusting God. And if we look at the story of Zacchaeus, I think there's a similar thing going on. Zacchaeus says... I'm going to give back everything I I stole, give back double, give back more than what I took. And I think that's what's going on here. That's why Matthew and and his fellow tax collectors are having this meal together with the fishermen because they're the people he's stolen from. There's redistribution going on here, just like was called for in the year of Jubilee. And there's real reconciliation because that redistribution is happening. So we often find it hard to, bring, to come to this place of celebration, this place of trust, this place of real thanks. And part of that is because we're used to a different kind of thanks. So Julie, can you show uh, the picture of, of debt, debt thanks? And this is the tower. So I said that celebration is a table, not a tower. Now lots of people, or all of us, we live in a world where Thanks is what we give to something up there, at the top of the tower. In Jesus' day, Caesar was the one who demanded gratitude. You had to give thanks to Caesar. Because Caesar was the one who gave you security, who gave you peace in the Roman Empire, who gave you survival. They gave you bread. They gave you food. They gave you a livelihood. In, when the Jews were in Babylon... The Babylonians built their enormous gate up to the heavens and said, we are the ones who give you security. We are the ones who give you peace. We are the ones who give you survival. And that's what Pharaoh did too. Pharaoh got the Israelites to build his pyramids, reaching up to the heavens because Pharaoh was, God's rep, was God on earth. That's what he was saying. That you need to give thanks because you owe a debt to me. You're obliged and it's an exchange going on. You give thanks and I'll give you protection. You give thanks and I'll look after you. And you know what? I don't think the world we live in now is much different. That's what our governments say. We give you security, we give you peace, you give us patriotism and loyalty. That's what our workplaces say. We give you a livelihood and you owe us loyalty. And sometimes that's how families work. Now that's not to say that these things are not, are not good things, that we have security and peace and survival. 
And ultimately, this is about the power of death. I'll tell you, I'll explain that just a little bit. So if, if the government says, I'm the one who gives you security, they're the ones who stop you from, from dying, being invaded by someone else. They give you enough to survive on. They, they give you peace. They keep you from death. But we know that there's only one that has power over death. So the fact that our governments and our workplaces and our families give us these things, that's okay. But they don't actually come from them, do they? Because God is the one who gives us our security. God is the one who gives us our peace. God is the one who provides all our needs. So our thanks is not an obligation. Yes, thank you for for giving me those things. I'm going to give you thanks now. The thanks of Jesus is a table. And can we have a look at the, the table, Julie? God is not up there, the one that we have to give thanks to because we're in debt with that the other table. <laughs> Sorry, Julie. <laughs> the other table with Jesus. Yes, that's the one. So God is not up there saying, I demand your gratitude because I've given all these things to you. Can we get the kids, Ben? No. Instead, Jesus is saying that God is among us at the table. A celebration, our gratitude is at the table, not at a tower far off. Our debts have been cancelled. Jesus didn't say to Matthew, follow me if you do these things. I'll accept you if you do these things. He just said, follow me. The debts were already cancelled. We are given Sabbath rest. We can jump off the hamster wheel and we can enjoy and celebrate because God has provided all we need. We can trust in God. And we are free from the fear of death. Because God has raised Jesus from the dead as the first fruits, and we're going to follow too. We don't do things out of fear of death anymore. And that's what the early Christians knew so well and lived it out so well. They weren't afraid because they knew that God is God of re resurrection. So Jesus says, after... Um, after the Pharisees asked this question, Jesus says, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice, for I have come to call not the righteous, but sinners. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. Learn what this means. So the thanks that we bring, the gratitude that we bring, is not a, a sacrifice. It's mercy that we have received and mercy that we share at the table. And there's lots of ways we can put this into practice during the week when we get together and celebrate and all those things. But the church has the most amazing way to remind us to be grateful. And that is around the table of communion. So we're going to share communion in a moment. So I think we've got a if we can pass, start passing communion around, that would be fantastic. I think we've got a 
maybe a couple of helpers who will help pass around communion too. I thought if we are talking about this gift, if we are talking about this celebration, and this is a celebration we get to do every week, well, the kids better join in too because they're part of this too. They're part of this celebration. They've been given this, this grace, this joy. Our debts are cancelled. We're free from the fear of death and we can jump off the hamster wheel and have rest. The church has given us this celebration every single week to remind us that we are grateful and we are free. That we trust in God to provide. And God is not a God of scarcity but a God of abundance. We have not just what we need but more than what we need and we can share it with our neighbour. That's what's going on in the story of Matthew. That he's giving back, that he's sharing, that he's making things right again. And that's just his response. It's not because Jesus has made him do it. It's his response to the Holy Spirit inside of him. And I wonder if we can, um, yeah, if we have some of the band up. And... Um, I'll just pray. God, we thank you that you are a God of abundance. That you make things right. That you free us and free us to love others and to share that freedom and share that love. Lord God, help us to be thankful. Help us to... Just take the time to, to realise the gifts that you've given us so that we in turn can share those gifts to those around us and that when it comes time to celebrate at the end of the week, at the birthday, when we celebrate as a church, that we can express that trust, that our celebration can be an expression of trust because you have provided for us. We praise you, God. We thank you so much.
now can live in freedom and trust and share that generosity with others. Thanks for joining us this morning. And um, make sure you, you join us with a, with a bit of a celebration. Have a tea and a coffee outside and um, have a great morning. Thank you.